Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta on this feast of St. Mary Magdalene, one of the most noted followers of Jesus from the first century. She's identified in the scriptures as the woman who anointed Christ's feet at the house of Simon. Uh, It's often said she had devils cast out of her by Jesus. Uh, She ministered to Christ and the apostles in Galilee. She was at the crucifixion. She discovered the empty tomb and was the first person to encounter the risen Christ. All in all, a remarkable disciple all the way back in the first century. One man who's been spending a good deal of time over the years talking about uh, the unique place of Eucharistic adoration in the life of the Catholic is Father Sean Davidson. He's a member of the Missionaries of the Most Holy Eucharist. He spent two years serving at the Basilica of St. Mary Magdalene in Provence, France, where he received the inspiration for his book, St. Mary Magdalene, Prophetess of Eucharistic Love. He is currently serving at the Eucharistic Retreat Center at the Seminary of the Immaculate Conception in Long Island, New York, and is the author of, again, St. Mary Magdalene, Prophetess of Eucharistic Love. Father, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Al. Great to be with you. The identity of uh, St. Mary Magdalene has been debated within the Church. Uh, There's much confusion about who she is in the world. But uh, what's the relationship between these three images we have of her in Scripture? We've got Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons were expelled, who was witness to the resurrection. We have the sinful woman converted to Christ in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we also have, uh, of course, the sister of Martha and sister of Lazarus, who uh, play such an important part in the Gospel of John. What's, what do we know from Scripture about St. Mary Magdalene? Are these passages relevant to her? Yes, indeed. Well, that's a, a very controversial question. Um, in the world, as you said, there are many different views. Some of them are completely uh, unacceptable <laughs> right. in the Catholic faith. Sure. In the Church, there are different views. Uh, even, I know, in Mel Gibson's Passion, he depicted her as the woman caught in adultery right. uh, in, uh, in John chapter 8. Uh, that one, I don't think, has been part of the Catholic uh, liturgical tradition, at least it wasn't part of that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, the, the Church has, in her uh, liturgical history, in the history of her traditions, she did identify uh, those three texts that you mentioned. So the woman uh, from whom went, seven, went forth seven demons, who was the witness to the resurrection, Mary called Magdalene, or called the Magdalene, so her mm-hmm. name is Mary, she's also called Magdalene. And then also this uh, uh, woman who wept at Christ's feet, who had her conversion in Luke, uh, Luke 7, and also the sister of Martha. So for the Church, for many, many, many centuries, over a thousand years, uh, the Roman Catholic Church held that that was all one woman. Okay. Uh, the, the, our Protestant brothers and sisters moved away from that tradition uh, shortly after the Reformation, 16th century. The Catholics continue to believe it. The Orthodox uh, didn't make that identification, uh, but the Catholics basically did believe uh, that tradition right up until the 20th century. And then there was such a strong debate, uh, especially among biblical scholars, exegetes, saying that we cannot say this for definite, for sure. Uh, By looking at the text, we can't uh, say that this is absolutely certain that this is one woman. Mm -hmm. And so the Church basically, uh, in her liturgy, she removed from the Gospel uh, the, the reading of the, the, the sinful woman, and also the opening prayer for Mass uh, referred to the sister of Martha and Lazarus. 
And uh, so she removed them just because the exegetes were saying that we cannot be absolutely sure. So mm -hmm. today, it's a, something of an open question. That's why uh, when the Church removed uh, those texts from the liturgy, uh, she kind of, you know, she basically said that we can't say this for certain mm -hmm. anymore. Sure. So it created a kind of a vacuum uh, within the Catholic Church. And now we have so many different uh, <laughs> versions and ideas on who Mary Magdalene is. So I decided that I would throw back uh, another idea into the mix, and it is basically that traditional idea, just to uh, explain exactly what we did believe. And in my opinion, it is not incoherent. It's not a, a, something that we cannot say. That we, you know, it's not irrational mm -hmm. to identify those three texts as speaking about uh, the same woman. I suppose the reason I did that was because I moved here to Provence. I'm actually in Provence for a couple of weeks at the moment oh, okay. and uh, visiting my community. But I moved here about four or five years ago. Our bishop entrusted the ancient basilica of Mary Magdalene, where her relics are said to have been kept uh, since the first century, mm -hmm. here in a place called saint Maximin in Provence. And uh, I, I really didn't know much about Mary Magdalene, you know, before I came I really just knew that she was, you know, the witness to the resurrection. But when I came, I discovered this tradition, which is still very, very strong here in Provence. It's really in their blood, you know, it's in their spiritual genes here. So it's hard, uh, it's hard for them not to associate Mary Magdalene with the sister of Martha and with this sinful woman. But I entered into that. There are beautiful processions. There are beautiful uh, veneration of the relics, uh, beautiful tradition of preaching here. It was the Dominican novitiate for 700 years. Mm. And so there's a great, uh, a great tradition in this basilica. And I found that I just sort of came to it without any preconceived ideas. And I just started to meditate on those uh, ancient uh, texts, you know, the, the, the three different texts. Right. And I felt myself really moved by that image, that this woman, if, if we were to say that it is one woman, yes. in fact, it, it's a very, very beautiful uh, portrait that is painted. It's a woman who is characterized by the most extravagant and extraordinary, almost radical love for Christ. Mm -hmm. And so she, teach, she taught me uh, a lot about love for Jesus. And as you mentioned earlier, my work is to uh, promote Eucharistic adoration, so love for Christ, the same Christ we read about in the Gospels, mm -hmm. is now in the Blessed Sacrament. And so we always recommend to people, when you go to adoration, use the Scriptures, bring the Gospels with you, enter into contemplation of Christ through His Word. You know, you, His personality mm -hmm. is revealed there in the text. And so use that as your springboard into your dialogue of love uh, with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. But I discovered that these particular texts, uh, the traditional texts, there are about six or seven texts, really, uh, that you can put together as speaking about the one person uh, mm -hmm. in accordance with the traditional belief. But I found that they're probably the most beautiful texts in the Gospels that you can use for adoration, simply because she does have that most extraordinary kind of love, which we should have when we're in adoration. That's what we're aiming for. It's we're there, really, to love Christ, to enter into dialogue with him. And so she's a great teacher of Eucharistic adoration, hmm. in my opinion. So the, um, so the Church never denied the identity uh, of Mary, th that those three pictures were Mary Magdalene. They were, the Church simply saying, we don't have the certainty, um, uh, certainty enough to continue to use those references in the liturgy. But that was my, that's my understanding, yeah. 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 Uh, I'm basically basing that upon uh, a couple of different people who, who have written books on Mary Magdalene. Sure. One is called Monsignor Jean-Pierre Ravotti. Unfortunately, his books are not in English, but 
He's kind of the incarnation of this tradition. Okay. He spends a lot of his time here in Provence. He was here when the Dominicans were before the Dominicans left in the 50s. Uh, and so he really says that basically the church didn't intend to completely eradicate the tradition, right. but just to say that, look, we can't say this for definite, so we're not going to impose upon the children of the church that they must believe something if we can't fully uh, prove it, you know, in terms of scriptures or be certain about it. We also had a, a great Dominican scholar here last summer. Uh, he gave a, a beautiful talk. His name is Renaud Sey, mm-hmm. and he uh, is pretty convinced that the tradition is true. He goes a little further. I was basically trying to say that it's not incoherent, you know, that you can still right. believe this right. tradition. He seems to say that if you look uh, deeply enough at the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, so John comes along decades after the synoptics have been written, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he says that John, in chapters 11 and 12, is clearly intending to make uh, identify uh, Mary of Bethany with the sinful woman. That part I believe, okay. uh, and I think that that can be argued. I try to argue that in my book. But he says that uh, also you can argue very strongly that there's an identification between Mary of Bethany and Mary of Magdalene if you dig deeply enough into those texts. And wow. he says you have to kind of go into them. It's so mysterious. You have to go into them in the Greek language. Yes. And he said you almost have to squeeze them like you would squeeze a lemon to get all of the, <laughs> the juice out of it. You have yeah. to really dig deep. And then you realize, oh, this is the same moment. John <laughs> is making this mysterious connection here. That's great. So uh, I found that very interesting. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Well, let's talk about it. You look at her, one of the chapters is titled The Prodigal Daughter Comes Home. Uh, why don't we start there? Okay, so the tradition here is that, uh, you know, that first text that you mentioned where she weeps at Christ's feet, Mm -hmm. uh, Luke 7, it just speaks about a sinful woman uh, weeping at his feet, doesn't give us any background about who this woman is, and doesn't reveal her identity. The tradition here in Provence, especially the Dominican uh, tradition, was that that is not the first time that Jesus meets Mary Magdalene, that there's something behind that. And it's true that if you look at it, the woman has this most extraordinary love and, and all gratitude and uh, radical sort of love for Jesus, that it would seem that there might be something behind that, that there's another event behind that. Now, the Scripture doesn't tell us when Mary Magdalene was liberated from her seven demons. It just gives, her, gives us her name. As I said, Mary called the Magdalene, mm-hmm. uh, who, from whom went forth seven demons. So the tradition here is that she has already been liberated from her seven demons, as many people were when Christ would preach. So yes. The power of his word would often liberate people uh, from darkness, bring great interior healing. When somebody has been liberated from oppression, very often they have a deep, deep interior peace and joy. And so that she has had that somewhere on the hills of Galilee. She was living in Magdala at the time, and so our Lord was preaching in that area. And so she was set free. And now she comes back in in Luke 7, the prodigal daughter. She comes back to uh, express her love and her gratitude uh, to Christ in that Mm. text, in the the Pharisee's house. (laughs) The backdrop, uh, you know, the background here really uh, enlivens uh, one's reading uh, of that passage. You have to use your imagination just a little bit. But I was helped because we have this beautiful ancient uh, pulpit here from, from which the Dominicans would, uh, would preach, you know, before we had our microphones. And uh, it, uh, sculpted into the pulpit are the images of her life, so the images from Scripture. Ah. But the very first image that is sculpted is basically somebody's imagination picturing that text. 
She's all dressed up. She's all beautiful. She's got her hair all beautiful. She's got her, 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 her precious jewels on her. She's got her robe on her. So it's the old uh, Magdalene. And Christ is sitting in the position of authority. He's got his hand raised. He's preaching. And he's driving the evil uh, out of her presence, driving, the, driving out the seven demons. And so it gave me a kind of an inspiration for my own uh, for my own meditation. Wow. Well, my guest, by the way, is Father Sean Davidson. Uh, he's author of St. Mary Magdalene, Prophetess of Eucharistic Love. Um, we're taking a look at uh, a topic which uh, hasn't been explored uh, nearly uh, to the degree that it ought to. And we're going to continue on the other side of the break. Um, I think this is absolutely fascinating. You may remember back during the uh, argument over uh, Dan Brown's novel, uh, Mary Magdalene was talked about quite a bit in very distorted pictures of her. So it's great to have this uh, more biblically-based understanding. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Sean Davidson, author of St. Mary Magdalene, Prophetess of Eucharistic Love. It's uh, the first book of its kind ever written in English. Uh, why, why do you think that's the case, Father? Well, as we mentioned, you know, uh, the Provençal tradition, the French tradition here, is really where this uh, veneration of the traditional image of Mary Magdalene has, has remained strong and has always been strong. So obviously most of the books uh, were written in French. Some of them have been translated into English, uh, actually. There's a beautiful book... Uh, by a man called Raymond Brookberger, mm-hmm. uh, B-R-U-C-K-B-E-R-G-E-R. That was probably the last great book written on the traditional version of Magdalene, written back in the 1950s, but a very beautiful, very convincing uh, book for me. And so uh, it has been translated into English, and it is an interesting one. But like you said, it, uh, most people in the Church have moved away from making that identification between, uh, what well, we said, the sinful woman and, and the sister of Martha. So I just wanted to give it like one last voice, basically. Yeah. It seems to me that it's almost disappearing and completely in our yeah. generation. Yeah. Uh, in, I agree. In, you know, in the English-speaking world. So I just want people to see exactly what it was, because sometimes we dismiss things as if they're irrational. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis used to speak about chronological snobbery. <laughs> right. That we just basically believe, well, if everybody says that today, then it must be true. It must be true, we yeah. We don't investigate why. Who, who debunked it? Where was it disproved? Why, uh, why is it uh, not true? So uh, that's kind of what I wanted to do. But then for me, like I said, when you meditate on the text, you find that there's something beautiful. And so there are two sort of levels to my own uh, meditation of the person of Mary Magdalene. The first was, like I said, she's a teacher of love for Christ, so mm-hmm. she can teach us how to love him, how to adore him in the Eucharist. Um, it, when, in the spirituality of Eucharistic adoration, we speak about uh, three or four different dimensions of our prayer that we should have. So we should have this adoration, which is basically a submission to Christ, a dialogue of love with Christ. We should also have uh, Thanksgiving, where we spend time giving him thanks for all, all of his blessings. We should also have intercession, where we intercede for our own needs and for the needs of the world. And we should also have something that we don't speak so much about today, but the prayer of reparation, yes, yes. where we make up for, we make reparation for, we repair the damage caused by our sins and by the sins of the world. But yes. if you dig deeply enough into this traditional image of Mary Magdalene, 
you can draw out all of those dimensions. You see that she's actually got a vocation of adoration already. And the one that struck me really is that reparation. Yes. You know, she yeah. makes up to Jesus for those who don't love him, for those who insult him. The, the first one is in the case of the Pharisee. The Pharisee doesn't respect Jesus in the way that he should, because when you have a guest of honor in your house, you're meant to embrace them at the door, you're meant to wash their feet, and you're meant to anoint them, anoint their head. And the Pharisee, for some reason, he doesn't do that. He probably is reluctant to show too much respect too much. Uh, for Christ. <laughs> he doesn't want to show too this. much commitment here. Uh, well, it's exactly. a little standoff. Like, yeah, we'll bring this guy over, we'll test him out a little bit, we'll poke him a little bit, but we're not going to show too much respect here. Right. So then she bursts in out of nowhere, and she does those very three <laughs> things, but in the most extraordinary way. And Jesus says it. He balances one. He says, you did not wash my feet. She has called forth this river of tears and washed them with her tears. You did not uh, embrace me at the door. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. Uh, you did not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with perfumed oil. So he, he, he praises her, but she's been inspired to do, and I think it's really the Holy Spirit. For some people who are present, it probably looks like she's crazy. But really, the Holy Spirit has inspired her to love Jesus yes. in this radical way in order to make reparation, to repair the insult that the Pharisee has, uh, has done, has inflicted upon his, his divine dignity. Wow. And you see that all throughout. If you meditate deeply enough, you see that in the different texts, she seems to be making up for somebody else's uh, lack of love for Christ. So that's a, a vocation of an adorer. Some people are really called into that. I know many people today who really have that vocation. It's very simple, but they're just called to love Jesus in a most radical way, and that makes up, it cancels out. Our Lord forgets about the sins of the world when he sees the love of his uh, beloved friends. You know, that's a, that is a you know, very important point, and that is that our, our adoration, our prayer, is not just our private devotion, but it actually has public consequences. In other words, um, <clears throat> we are, uh, you might say, standing in the gap, uh, as she did for that Pharisee who, uh, you know, really did visit violence upon his his dignity. Uh, she actually isn't just expressing her own personal private devotion um, by showing her love of Christ. She's actually, you might say, canceling out uh, yeah. in some way uh, the violation of the Pharisee. Yeah, well, love is a mysterious thing, you know. God is love, and he inspires love for a particular reason. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Church has always had that instinct. If you read back the lives of the saints, uh, St. Peter Julian Amard is a great Eucharistic adorer. But if ever he would hear of, like, a sacrilege or a profanation of the Blessed Sacrament, uh, they would organize a night of adoration. So everybody would go and do a night before the Lord, and that would repair, that would cancel out the evil. The other dimension of the vocation of Mary Magdalene, which I uh, touched upon in the book, and it's something that's intriguing me more and more, if these texts are correct, if they really do speak about one woman, and mm -hmm. again, that's a debated question, but if it were true, mm -hmm. then you can see in these texts that the woman has a kind of prophetic vocation. So that's why I called it prophetess of Eucharistic love. She teaches us about Eucharistic love, but she's also prophetic. And, uh, you know, a prophet is somebody through whom the Lord acts, through whom the Lord speaks. And for me, there are two essential uh, ways in which God communicates through a prophet. One is that he often reveals a future event, an important right. event. And another is that he often rebukes 
sinners. Right. He enlightens us as to what we must change in order to please God, how we are offending God. Mm-hmm. But if you look at her, uh, she's a prophet not by word, but by gesture. So, you know, in the Old Testament, there was Jeremiah, Ezekiel, different prophets. Mm-hmm. They would be called upon to do gestures. Yeah. And through yeah. these gestures, God was speaking. There was mm-hmm. a meaning, a communication being transmitted through the gesture. And eventually the gesture would be interpreted by word. But first of all, God spoke uh, by the action. Yes. But if you look at her, she is really rebuking the Pharisee. So she's rebuking him for what he has failed to do uh, for Christ by her love. Her love is the teaching uh, that rebukes him. And then the Lord is the one. He who is the eternal word. He interprets her action. He says, you see this woman? You did not do this, but she did this. Yes. Later on, in the second anointing, which happens just a few days before his passion, now back down in Judea in Bethany near, near Jerusalem, mm-hmm. she, her anointing, uh, prophesies the most important event in human history, which is the passion of Christ. Right, right. She, by her love, by that gesture, Jesus says she has prepared his body for burial. And so she's uh, prophesying that in a few days' time, Christ will be buried. After the resurrection, she becomes a prophetess, not just by action, but also by word. She's the prophetess of the ascension. Because Jesus says to her, go and tell my brothers that I, I am ascending to my father and your father. So she's the one chosen first in human history, first person really, to proclaim the fullness of the gospel. Wow. The gospel yeah. proclaim, uh, includes the resurrection, that is the good news, the ultimate good news. So she's the first apostle to the apostles, the first one to proclaim that, that mystery, but also the prophetess of the ascension. Really? So I think there's something very, very mysterious and profound hidden in this, uh, this secret, this woman, uh, her vocation. Well, that, that's, um, that actually gives, uh, again, a lot of uh, gravity and weight to this concept of the apostle to the apostles. Normally, when that phrase is used, it's her proclaiming the resurrection to the apostles. But when you begin to look at it in terms of the, the, the action of Jesus in his passion, uh, resurrection, and then ascension, uh, it's even a heavier phrase, apostle to the apostles. And that she is a woman is significant, isn't it? It is significant. Now that has been, uh, you know, there is a, a feminist uh, version also of Mary Magdalene, and uh, they try to see her or proclaim her as the model of female leadership, which is true. She most certainly is a beautiful model of female leadership. But for some reason, they don't want to associate her. They really are, and they get very angry about it sometimes. They don't want to associate her with uh, the sinful woman in Luke 7 or with the uh, contemplative sort of sister of of Martha. You know, she has this silent, deep contemplative streak. And uh, so for some reason, they don't think that that's compatible with being an apostle, with, with proclaiming, with uh, being out there evangelizing right. and all of that. But I don't see the problem. No, I don't I see d- the contradiction. I don't either, yeah. Because, you know, if, if being a sinner prevents you from becoming a great saint or a great apostle, <laughs> we're all in trouble. And, uh, you know, St. Augustine, he wrote a whole book about his sins, and yet he became one of the greatest apostles and greatest leaders in, in the entire church. Yeah. He influenced the entire world. And also being contemplative doesn't prevent you from being an apostle. In fact, the best apostles are those who have deeply contemplative spiritual lives. Then they have something profound uh, to teach. The ancient tradition here, one of the ancient texts that speaks about the, her time here in Provence, you know, the tradition has it that she ended her life exiled in Gaul. One of the traditions says that she would proclaim 
the risen Christ. And whenever she would speak about the risen Christ in public, everybody would be moved to tears, and they would be inflamed with love, uh, love for God. And he says that her, her preaching was itself an act of contemplation. She was so immersed in huh. Christ, so deeply contemplative, that everything she did uh, poured forth from this deep uh, contemplation of the mystery of God. But that's a perfect union between contemplation and action. That's it. That's what yeah. makes action powerful. You know, yeah. St. John of the Cross says that the apostolic man should basically cut his activities in half, spend the other half of the time in contemplation, <laughs> and then he'll be powerful. Then he'll change the world. Oh, I love that. Uh, let, let me, we only have about 60 seconds left here. I just want to, you mentioned that the four pillars of Eucharistic prayer, and that's adoration, thanksgiving, reparation, and intercession. And those can mm-hmm. be seen in the life of uh, St. Mary Magdalene, uh, looking at those three biblical pictures. Uh, why is it that there is some opposition to Eucharistic adoration today. Again, I don't want to get off too far on this, but I'm actually shocked by it. Uh, I know in one case, uh, a particular bishop has decided not to permit Eucharistic adoration, and I I don't understand what he could be possibly reacting to. Can you give us a very quick understanding there uh, so we can be a little more sympathetic to that position? Well, it is hard to be sympathetic with. It's hard to defend Uh, the indefensible, but... um, I'm not really sure, but I know that in France here, for example, I preached here for many years on adoration, there was this idea that people were not focused enough on the poor and that they were just sort of hiding away in their private spiritual lives and not going out to the poor. Mother Teresa is really the antidote to that because nobody loved the poor like she did. She said that the only reason she could see Jesus in the poorest of the poor was was because she had first seen him in the Blessed Sacrament in adoration that, that day. Father, thank you. This is a great piece of work you've done, very helpful, and we'll talk again. Thank you, Al. God bless you.